In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. My dear friends in Christ, I think every culture has probably their own way of saying it. We say it, and it sounds something like this. You're only as good as the company you keep. In other words, if you surround yourself with bad, evil, no good, low lowlifes, well, that also says something about you. Either you're ignorant about who your friends are and what they do, or worse, you know who they are and you know what they do and you still choose to keep them as your company anyway. Either way, you're only as good as the company you keep. Here's how the culture, especially the religious culture, in Jesus' day, said that. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man, Jesus, welcomes sinners and even eats with them. You know, Jesus, for a couple years now, you've been trying to convince us that you are the Christ the promised Messiah who was to come into the world, and for years we've been fighting against it. And do you know why? Look at the people, the company that you keep. Either you are ignorant of who these people are and what they do with their lives, or worse, you know who they are and you know what they do and you still choose to keep them as your company anyway. Either way, there is no way that the real Messiah would keep people around Him like the people you do. And in order to respond to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, their disgust for Jesus and His company, Jesus tells three stories. Three stories that comprise all of Luke chapter 15. The first is a story about a shepherd who has a hundred sheep and one of them goes missing. And so he leaves the 99 until he goes and he finds the one. And when he finds the one, he throws it over his shoulders, he races home, and he calls up all of his neighbors and friends and he throws a party. Come and celebrate with, with me. I found my lost sheep. And then Jesus tells a story about a woman who had ten silver coins until she lost one. And so she lights a lamp, she sweeps the house until she finds it. And when she finds it, she does the exact same thing. She calls up all of her neighbors and her friends and she invites them over and she says, Come and celebrate with me, I have found my lost coin. And the conclusion of both of those stories is the same. It's the verse of the day that our choir sang earlier from Luke chapter 15, verse 10. There is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God, Jesus says, over one sinner who repents. And then Jesus tells the third story. Arguably the most well of the three and maybe one of the most well-known stories that Jesus ever told. 
Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. There are a whole lot of different names that have been given to and could be given to this parable, but I think one of those would be the parable of surprises. Because you can't hardly make it a verse without finding or reading something that should downright surprise you. And here's the first. The younger son of two goes to his father and says, I want my inheritance. Now, if you've ever been given an inheritance, you know there are a couple of things that need to happen before you get it. And the first and sadly most important is that the person who is giving you the inheritance has to die. And the son, the younger son, says, Dad, I want that day to be today. I don't really care about you so much, or if you go on living, I just want your stuff. I love your money more than I love you. Will you please just give it to me so that I can get you out of my life? That's surprising. That takes guts. But the very next verse is even more surprising if you ask me. The father actually does it. There's no debate. There's no discussion. In fact, it says that he divides up everything he has between both of his sons and he gives it all away. And so the younger son, getting what he really wanted, took his newly acquired wealth and he went off and he prodigaled it. That is, he squandered it. He wasted it. That's what the word prodigal means. But eventually, and as it always tends to do, the money ran out. And to make matters worse, a famine came over the entire land. And this younger son finds himself in a position that he had never been in his life. He needed to find a job. And he found one. Only, it was the absolute lowest and worst job that anyone could possibly ever find, especially for a young Jewish boy. He's working with the most unclean animal in God's good creation. He's feeding pigs. And he's in such desperate need that he starts to long for the slop that he's throwing down in front of the pigs. And listen to this. No one gave him anything. Now that is a dark place to be. And if you've ever been in a place like that in your life, maybe your only hope, your only consolation is to do what this younger son did next. He started reminiscing. He started thinking about the good old days about how when he was a son in his father's house, he never had a want or a need because everything was provided for him. And not only for him, but also for the servants who worked in his father's house. He thought to himself, their lives are a thousand times better than mine is right now. And he came up with a plan. He said, I know that I'm not worthy to be my father's son anymore. Things cannot go back to the way they were. I blew it and to a... To a degree, I acknowledge it. I accept it. And yet, maybe if I go home, 
I apologize, I beg, I plead for my Father's forgiveness, maybe, maybe He will make me like one of His hired servants. Can you picture that long walk home? Sad, sorrowful, embarrassed, ashamed. You wonder how many times he stopped and tried to talk himself out of it. Maybe it would just be better for me to die with my shame than to have to face my father, to face that scene. How in the world will I ever be able to show my face around my house again? I spent what it took my father a lifetime to save, and I have absolutely nothing to show for it. Worse than that, I told him I wanted him dead. And now a part of me just wishes that I was the one who was dead. And how many times did he practice that speech? You feel like he could have said it in his sleep by the time he got there. Father, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your slaves. Not worthy to be your son. Make me one of your slaves. Not worthy. Make me a slave. Again, and again, that was his best possible outcome. That was the only thing that he could possibly imagine. That was as good as his life could possibly get from here on out was to be a lowly servant in a house that he once stood to inherit. And all the while that this is going on, this walking back and forth and talking to himself, his father and his older brother were still out in the fields working. Somebody had to be. And yet there was the father every morning as he woke up and as he went out to work, he kept one eye on the horizon, hoping and praying that the day would come when his son would return. And that day finally came. He saw his son weak, famished, broken, staggering down the road. And as only a parent could, despite the far distance, despite the lapse of time, despite the tattered clothes and probably hadn't gotten a, a haircut or taken a bath in months or years, from far off the father could still recognize, that's my boy. And he was not going to wait another second. And so he ran to him. He scoops him up in his arms, embraces him, and kisses him. Yet another surprise. To see this old man running down the road, holding his, his clothes as he didn't want to trip over them. It was surprising to everyone. The servants, the older son, as we'll hear in a moment, but it was surprising to no one more so than to that younger son. It was the last thing he expected. Even as his father is kissing him, he cannot believe it. He still starts saying his recited speech. Father, I am not worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your slaves. But the father will have none of it. 
He will not have it. Get a robe, the best one. Get a ring, put it on his finger, sandals on his feet, kill the fattened calf, let's throw a festival. My son is home. Back from the dead. Just like the shepherd, and just like the woman with the coins, the father throws a party, and everyone celebrates. Well, everyone except one. The older son is out in the field. Of course he is. Because that's where a good son, that's where a hard worker should be. But he hears the music, he sees the dancing, and he can't help but ask the question, what in the world is going on? And one of the servants tells him. And can you picture this servant who's running from probably even farther out in the field, out of breath, breath, elation on his face, and he says, you haven't heard? Your brother is home. Your father was so excited, he forgave him, he embraced him, he kissed him, he killed the fattened calf, and now we all got the rest of the day off because we're going to have a party. Isn't that amazing? Come on, let's go. And there he stood. He's not going to celebrate. He's furious. Because he, unlike his brother, always followed the rules. He worked hard his whole life. He always tried to do right by his father. He knew the difference between good and evil, between obedience and sin. He was respectful and kind. He did everything that was asked of him. He saved his money, and maybe more than any of that, he knew better than anyone just how deeply his brother had hurt his father. And he was angry. And you know what? You would be too. Chances are you even have someone like this in your family. Maybe a sibling who tried to sneak behind your back and get a larger share of the inheritance. Or we all have the black sheep in the family. Maybe it's you. Somebody who kind of walked off and left the family and did their own thing and eventually walked away from God and it broke mom and dad's heart to know that their son, that their daughter was living like there was no God in this world. But we can see this anger, I think, more clearly and experience it almost more intimately when we ask the question, the question that we all really struggle with, when we hear a story like this and so many more in the Bible, and that is this. Do deathbed confessions really work? Meaning, can someone just repent in the final seconds of their life and really be saved? It doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem right. I spent my whole life serving you, God. The whole life doing my best to say no to sin and fighting against temptation, sacrificing my wants and my desires to make and keep you happy, suffering for my faith. And this rebel who caused you only grief throughout their entire life, did nothing, gave nothing for you or for the cause of your church, they get into heaven just the same as I do? Sound familiar? The older son refused to celebrate. He won't even leave the field. He won't go into the house. 
And so the father goes out to him. Yet another surprise, but hopefully by this point, you see what kind of father this is. What sort of father would divide up his inheritance while he was still alive and give it to all his kids? What sort of father then wouldn't at least some sort of an apology or demand some sort of acts of contrition when his prodigal son returned? What father would leave the party to go out to coddle a moping grown man? Let him sulk is what I would have said. But not this father. Not your father. He goes out to embrace his son too. And here's their conversation. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look. All these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet, you never gave me even a goat, a young goat, so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Isn't it interesting? The only reason the younger son came home is because he thought there might be the smallest chance that he could end up being a servant in his father's house. And yet... This older brother who stuck around, who faithfully and diligently worked hard his whole life, saw himself as exactly that, a servant and nothing more. We think these two brothers are are so diametrically different. But at the end of the day, neither one of them saw himself as the father's son, but only as his slave. To be a slave was the younger brother's dream. But in the older's mind, he already was. All these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. You know, their lives might have looked very different on the outside, what they did with them and how they lived. But really, in a strange way, both of these brothers were exactly the same. Now, here is what Jesus is doing with this story. He's outlining for us three possible conditions of life without the gospel. In other words... Jesus is answering the question, what would your life look like without the good news of Jesus Christ permeating it? Jesus says there's three options, and all of them are present in the story. There's hedonism, there's despair, and there's pride. 
First is hedonism, which is simply a lawless life of chasing after your own pleasures. This is what the younger son did after he received his inheritance and ran off and squandered his father's wealth. Hedonism says, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. It looks at God's commandments as being restrictive and prohibiting a full and pleasurable life. This is what the world and the culture in which we find ourselves today is predicated on. And like the younger son found out, this kind of life, sooner or later, comes up empty. King Solomon, wise King Solomon, he lived that life from time to time. The hedonistic lifestyle, and he teaches us what it's like. He says, it's vanity. It's like vapor. It's here today and it's gone tomorrow. It's like chasing after the wind. And worse than that, it always, always, always ends up in death. Now, this should be obvious to Christians, and so we're going to leave this one for now and specifically look at the other two options of what a life without the gospel looks like, despair and pride. The younger son matured past hedonism. And he found himself in despair. You can hear that in the words of his speech, can't you? That he's saying to himself again and again, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. No longer worthy to be called your son. When, when God's law has done its work on us, and like a mirror, shown us the total and complete depravity of our sin, so that we recognize how desperately empty and broken we are, we come to despair. We might convince the people around us otherwise, but we see that we do not keep God's law. Worse, we cannot keep God's law. We see our sins against our neighbor, our anger, our lust, our greed, and even more so, our sins against our God. Boasting in ourselves, a lack of trust in God, a fear of death, our love of the world, and just one of those is more than enough for God to cast us away from his presence forever. And he should. And despair says he probably will. And in despair, without the gospel, our only hope is to maybe somehow work our way into being a slave in God's house to spend the rest of our lives making up for the things that we've done wrong, which is the absolute best that every other world religion outside of Christianity can offer you. I am not worthy to be called your son. Make me your servant. Despair. And then there's the flip side of despair, that is pride. This is the older son. This is the, the Pharisee, the teachers of the law, the ones to whom Jesus is really addressing this parable. Those who view themselves as more righteous and more deserving than others based purely on how well they have lived their lives. That by their own works, by their own merits, they've managed to do enough to make God happy. But again, both sons both the despairing and the prideful, have only the same hope. 
to be a slave. The younger son hoped to one day earn his slavehood. Please, Father, make me your servant. The older son thought he was the father's servant all along. All these years I have been slaving for you. And this, brothers and sisters, is us without the gospel. In one way or another, we want to think that God is our master and we are his slaves. And so we're constantly either running away from God, from the the killjoy of his rules, hedonism, or we're working hard to try and win his approval, despair, or thinking that we've already achieved his approval through our good works and diligence, pride. But the Father, your Father, will not have it. He will not have any of it. Because God the Father does not want slaves. He wants sons. He does not want servants. He wants children. So to the sinner this morning who's in despair, who thinks to yourself, I'm too far gone. I have outsinned God's ability to forgive. Jesus runs to the cross and suffers all things so that his Father can scoop you up in his arms and embrace you with his love. He covers you with the robe of the righteousness of Christ put on you in baptism, the ring, the seal of the Holy Spirit given to you in rebirth. Jesus doesn't just kill the fattened calf for you. He himself is the sacrifice. He himself is the feast. As he feeds your body and soul with his body and blood, he claims you as his son, his daughter, his beloved. To the despairing, God the Father says, you belong in this family. You belong in this home. You belong at this feast. And to the sinner who is tempted with pride who think you have earned a place in God's family and at the table by your righteous efforts, you who are troubled by the Father's grace that he has for others, or to see Jesus eating with sinners, repent of your pride. And then rejoice. Rejoice that you have been given the same forgiveness. That you too are children of God the Father, not his servants, not his slaves. And rejoice because everything he has is yours. Not because you've earned it or deserved it, but because your brother Jesus died for you to make it so. And in his death and in his resurrection, Jesus has freely given to you all the gifts of your Father, his kindness and compassion, his love and attention, his spirit and his name, heaven and earth itself, they're all yours. Gracious gifts of your Father, who does not want slaves, but sons. And that, dear saints, is exactly what you are. Friend, if you're dragging yourself here today to the Father, hoping only to be His slave, look up and see the Father running to you, embracing you, kissing you, delighting in you. 
And if you're stubbornly standing out in the field, whining because you see the grace of God and know that it isn't fair, look up. And see the Father coming to you too. Giving you everything that is His. Embracing you just the same. Promising you that you are always with Him. And together, rejoice. Rejoice that you are called to the feast of the Lord's kindness and to the celebration of His grace. And know, dear friends, that you are at that feast right now. You are in the celebration right now. The angels are rejoicing right now. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit are here rejoicing over you even as you rejoice in them. And so we pray, Lord, keep it so. Until that day comes when we are welcomed into the feast that has no end. God grant it. Amen.